Yesterday at uh, Congregation Beth Sar Shalom, we had a guest speaker, uh, Jonathan Burnish from the Jewish Voice came. And so I didn't give my revelation message to them. So you get it, and they don't get it. <laughs> so we are in Revelation chapter 18. We're talking about Babylon the Great. And uh, you can follow along in your Bible or most of the text I'll have up here on screen. Let's take a look. So after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. One of the mistakes I think we make when we study the Bible is we look too narrowly at the text and we don't look at the big picture. So one of the things I like to teach people, when you study the Bible, step back for a minute and answer one simple question. What was that about? Not all the details, you do that later. Just what was the main theme of what I just read to you? And it'll help you understand what the scripture is dealing with. So here's how I summarize that. Babylon is wealthy, evil, and satanic. She spread her evil religion around the world. It used poetic language to say it. It used more details to say it. But that's what it was saying. Verse 3 said specifically, All the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She spread her evil all the world, and they've all drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Fornication. In this context, it means idolatry. Um, Babylon is the source of all evil in the world. Sorta. Obviously, Satan is the source of evil in the world. But let me give you a little bit of background about Babylon, and then I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say. Babylon plays a key role in the Bible. It's mentioned some 300 times. There's only one other city mentioned more than Babylon in the Bible, and I, you can imagine which it is. It's Jerusalem. So on the one hand, the Bible features two great cities, a spiritual headquarter of holiness and a wicked, evil empire. And from Genesis through Revelation, they're like at odds for attention in the scripture. This is what Jerusalem's doing. This is what Babylon's doing. At the very beginning, we see Babylon. At the very end, we see Babylon. Babylon happened to be the world's first empire. And it was the first empire to defy God. Throughout history... Babylon rose time and time again as a major evil empire. It's seen in the scripture as being in opposition to God and also enemies to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. So when I say she's the source of all evil in the world, you're beginning to get a sense of where I'm going. In Genesis chapter 10, here's what it says. Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Babel is Babylon. It's just a shortened version of the name. So Genesis chapter 10, almost at the beginning of humanity, we have this first big empire, and it's founded by a guy named Nimrod. 
And it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord in verse 8. But that doesn't make any sense to me. I always wondered, why is it talking about his hunting prowess in context with God? Like, hey, you're a good hunter. Good for you, guy. But it doesn't look like Nimrod's a positive guy in the scripture. So it never made any sense to me. Then I did some research, and I found out that it could be translated in a different way, in which I think is a better way. It could say it this way. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord, not a mighty hunter before the Lord or with the Lord. Or he was a mighty hunter in defiance of the Lord. So he's using a poetic language, uh, some sort of metaphor, to talk about him being a hunter, which you'll, you'll understand in just a minute. But to this very day, we use the word Nimrod in an offensive way, don't we? You Nimrod. Nimrod's not a word that has ever been good in our culture, ever good in the Bible culture. His name, Nimrod, comes from the Hebrew word marad, which means we will revolt. So the guy's very name is Rebellion. And then he builds Babel, which has this big rebellion against God. I find it interesting how his name matched his character. Have you ever researched your name? Have you ever wondered if it matches your character? It's kind of interesting that God will do that sometimes. So I think what's going on, according to the commentaries, is that he was a hunter but he wasn't a hunter of animals. He was a hunter of souls of men. He was a hunter of people. He was an evil, vicious man. Ancient Eastern tradition says that he built the Tower of Babel, which makes sense because it says he started the kingdom of Babel. And it says this, which is very interesting. It says, he was placed among the constellations as a heaven-storming giant who had to be chained by God. Now, I don't know where that legend comes from, but it shows you that he was not respected as a godly person. He was like demonic, this monster like a Nephilim or something. They had to be changed, chained by God, heaven storming. Remember what happened at the Tower of Babel? Let's build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. It's almost like Nimrod is a type of the Antichrist who raises his fist and tries to ascend the heights of heaven, just another pawn of Satan trying to take God's throne. And this is at the beginning of, of human history, Genesis chapter 10. One of the Jewish targums, a targum is a, a Jewish Bible, but it's not just a translation, it has commentary woven into the translation. So it's kind of like a paraphrase with a commentary all webbed together. And this is what it says. Nimrod began to be a mighty man in sin, a murderer of innocent men, and a rebel before the Lord. So that's their version of the Bible. Another Targum from Jerusalem says this. He was mighty in hunting, or mighty in prey, and in sin before God. For he was a hunter of the children of men in their languages. Babel. And he said to them, depart from the religion of Shem, which was the religion of God, and cleave instead to the institutes of Nimrod. Abandon God and follow me. Sound familiar? Exactly what the Antichrist does. Exactly what Satan does. One more uh, Targum says this. From the foundation of the world, none was ever found like Nimrod, 
powerful in hunting and in rebellions against the Lord. So from the dawn of humanity, Babylon was an evil empire. The Babylonians eventually destroyed Israel. They're the ones that destroyed the Holy Temple. And now Babylon is featured in the book of Revelation at the end of times, which is quite interesting to me. At the beginning of times, she's the most evil empire. Throughout history, she's seen as the evilest of empires. And then at the end of all times, she's the evil empire. God's doing interesting things. But a lot of people look at Babylon and say, it can't be literal. Because if you look at Babylon today, it's Iraq. She's not important. In, in Revelation, it's like the world superpower. That's not Iraq. So people try to come up with a different interpret, interpretation that Babylon doesn't re really mean Babylon. There is that possibility that it's symbolic. I mean, if you think about it, in chapter 17, it's called Mystery Babylon. So maybe the mystery ties to her name and her identification. Maybe she's just a symbol of this end-time evil empire. It's not a strong argument, but it is an argument. I mean, spiritually speaking, Israel is called Sodom and Egypt in the book of Revelation. So it's possible that a city could stand for another city because that city shares its character. So this evil end times empire might be called Babylon because it's acting like Babylon, but it may not really be Babylon. That is a possibility. However, I think the stronger possibility that Babylon literally will rise again back in the Middle East in Iraq. Why do I think that? Well, I stumbled across Mark Hitchcock's book. Actually, it was given to me, and I read it some uh, maybe a year or so ago. It's a pretty good book. I'd recommend it for those of you who want to, you know, research the end times. But I went back to it to find out what he thought about Babylon. And he had a list of like seven reasons he thought Babylon was literal Babylon. I highlighted some of the, the better ones, and I'll just give them to you. His first one is basic rule of thumb in the scriptures. When the plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense, you end up with nonsense. He says, it says Babylon, it means Babylon. Unless there's a strong, strong reason for you to think it doesn't mean Babylon, let it mean what it says. That's the rule we use for scripture. He says, use that rule here. Is there a strong biblical reason to think this is not Babylon? And the answer is no, there's not. So he says, then follow the rule. Okay, that's his first reason. Secondly, he says, twice in the book of Revelation... This river, the Euphrates, is mentioned. So it's tied to the end times. And Babylon, was it straddled the Euphrates River. So his mindset is, not only does it say Babylon, but end times seems to be wrapped around the Euphrates River where Babylon was. So that's another one of his reasons. Third one is the vision that the prophet Zechariah had. In it, he sees a basket and a woman named Wickedness. And she's brought by, I think, a stork in the basket and brought to Babylon where it says she will build a temple. So he's prophesying about the future and Wickedness again returns to Babylon. He says that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And he may be right. Isaiah and Jeremiah, and here's your fourth reason. They both prophesied that Babylon would be destroyed suddenly and completely. 
But that's not how Babylon ceased to exist in history. It was a slow and subtle decline. So if Babylon, two prophets said she's going to be destroyed swiftly and completely, and as far as we know, historically, that's never happened, it must be a prophecy for the future. So you take Zechariah's prophecy, Jeremiah's prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy, and it all seems to be saying that Babylon's going to rise again. He makes good points. So whether it's the literal Babylon or symbolic Babylon, one thing is for sure. It's going to corrupt the world. It's going to be the source of evil again. Revelation 18.3 says, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then verse 5 says, Her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her evil ways. Her sins have reached to heaven. And I pointed out to you again that whole Tower of Babel thing. They wanted to build a tower to reach up to heaven. They failed. God shut them down. But their sins did reach up to heaven. And now we've got the future Babylon. It says her sins reach up to heaven. What sins? What does she do that's so wicked that makes her the worst of the worst? Everything. But there's three, three sins that are emphasized over and over again. So we'll focus in on those. First two that I want to mention are fornication and idolatry. And these two go hand in hand throughout scripture. So I mentioned them together. In fact, Babylon in chapter 17 is called the great harlot, which is a nice way of saying the great whore. Didn't translate it that way, but it could have. Or it could have said the great prostitute. Either one of those would have worked. But it wanted to use the cleaner language of harlot, which is a word we don't use today. So Babylon is called the great whore in the Bible. And then chapter 18 says... All nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Fornication, that's another word we don't use too much today. It comes from the Greek word, you ready for this? Pornia. Sound familiar? That's the same word we get our word pornography from. So when it says, all the nations drunk of the wine of the wrath of her pornia, it's not saying she had pornography, which I'm sure she does. The word pornia just means sexual sin in general. She was a sexually sinful nation, pursuing all sorts of evil, sinful behavior. So what is sexual sin? I could do a whole series on that, or just a whole sermon on that. Not today. But you can go to Leviticus 18. In fact, I encourage you to. Go home and read Leviticus chapter 18. It basically enumerates almost all the sexual sins you can think of. It tells you what proper sexual behavior is and is not. Listen, in today's day and age, you need to know that chapter. Why do we take a stand against the things we take a stand against? And why do we stand for the things we take a stand for? Leviticus 18 will help you understand that. But it isn't just sexual fornication it's also used throughout Scripture as a metaphor for spiritual fornication. God is seen as our husband, and we're his bride. So if we worship other gods, we're seen as adulterous, adulterers, fornicators. God uses that imagery. So Babylon, which is promoting idolatry, is promoting spiritual fornication. And those two, um, idolatry... And sexual fornication almost always go hand in hand. Throughout history, 
the religions of the idolaters, they always had sex actually as part of their religion. They had temple prostitutes on staff all the time. Crazy religious sexual stuff. There's a direct tie between idolatry and fornication, and it's mentioned time and time in the Bible. I told you you'd go to Leviticus 18 to read about sexual sin. Listen to what it says in chapter 17 of Leviticus. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Demons, idols, and sexual fornication tied together in that one verse and in many places. Idolatry is called harlotry in Scripture. I told you, chapter 17, it says this about her. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of all abominations of the earth. She's not just a harlot. She's the mother of harlots. We use that expression today. It's going to be the mother of all wars. Mother just means the most, the source of. She's the source of all evil in the world. She's the mother of harlots. She's going to launch harlots and harlotry all over the world, twisting people away from God. I wonder if she's already begun. All right, so fornication. Idolatry is demon worship. I read that passage to you just a second ago. It said... um, They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. 1 Corinthians says the same thing. It says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. They don't know they're sacrificing to demons. It's not like a demon knocked on their door one day and said, listen, I want you to go to hell. I really do. So I want you to worship me instead of God so we can go to hell together. They don't make it that obvious. I mean, I guess sometimes you can see the tie together between idolatry and demons. Sometimes their idols and their gods look really creepy. And from our Western Christian perspective, we know they're demonic. But sometimes their idols are pretty attractive. They don't look scary or creepy at all. Look kind of nice. Listen, demons are tricky. Or as one great possessed man said, tricksy. Some of you get the reference. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 11.14. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. If Satan comes and knocks at your door, he's not going to look like a monster and tell you, hey, let's all go to hell together, go kill somebody. No, he's going to try to seduce you and trick you. And if you think something is good, like, I don't know, save the planet, he'll try to make that your religion. He doesn't care as long as you're not worshiping God. As long as you're distracted from God. He doesn't care what you do as long as it's distracting you from God. You can do also, you can give your whole life to feeding children and still go to hell because you have no relationship with Jesus. Satan would love you to do that. He's smart. His end game is to get you to hell. If you've got to feed a few children to get there, he's all right with that. He will do whatever it takes to get you to go to hell with him. Idolatry is tied to demons. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. Demons and the devil are tricky. In Revelation, idolatry is again tied to demons. Revelation 18:2. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons. 
kind of scary to think about it. Could you imagine living in a city that is the dwelling place of demons? Some of you are thinking, yeah, we do. No, I don't think so. Not like this is going to be. False religions, by the way, the successful ones, are demon-inspired. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. People follow demons in their false religions. They don't know it but the demons inspire the false religion. So you think of any false religion that's successful, there's a demon behind it. Well, fornication is tied to idolatry. Idolatry is tied to demons. There's one more sin that I want to talk about that is equated with idolatry. And I get this from Colossians chapter 3. Here's what it says. So put to death your worldly impulses. Put to death sexual sin, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. It's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Greed is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? I don't think that's a good translation, the word greed there. The King James uses what I think is a better word. It says covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness and greed are not quite the same thing. They're similar, but they're not quite the same thing. Covetousness means that you are in an unhealthy way lusting after something you should not have. And that word lust is a synonym for covetousness. It can be used in the sexual realm or in the non-sexual realm. Know the, the commandment that says you shall not covet your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or anything that is your neighbor's. You can't have it. It's your neighbor's. It's not yours. That's covetousness. Now listen to what it says. Covetousness, greed, idolatry. Listen to what it says about Mystery Babylon, chapter 18, verses 11 and following. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. I've jumped ahead to Babylon's destruction, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, but she will be destroyed. And it says the merchants of the earth are going to weep because she's destroyed. Because no one can buy their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, fragrant oil, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and the bodies and souls of men, and the fruits that your soul lusted after. Today, almost everything you look at says made in China. There it's going to say made in Babylon. Everything's going to go through Babylon. They're going to be the number one world superpower when it comes to money and to influence. But I found it interesting that they said, and the bodies and souls of men and the fruits that your soul lusted after. Covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Lust means a strong desire for something you should not have. So, Mystery Babylon, the source, the mother of harlots, the source of all this evil. Three major sins are emphasized. Fornication, both types, the spiritual and the physical. Idolatry, which can be seen as covetousness. And covetousness. So it's like idolatry is mentioned twice, both aspects. These are the three major sins of Babylon. Good things, we don't struggle with them today. When I read this, my eyes went like this. What's the difference between them and us? I think it's just a matter of degree. These are the same things we struggle with today as our nation. We live in a country that wrote the book on covetousness. We're all about getting more. All about that. Fornication? It's enshrined in our laws. Wow. We're like that. Switching gears just for a moment. God decided many years ago during the days of Abraham that he was going to destroy a bunch of cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are the two ones you've heard of. But it was Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. So it was a whole area of several different villages and cities that had totally turned over to evil, like Babylon will. And God decided he was going to destroy them. But there was still one good guy left. So God sent some angels and said, Lot, take your family. You have to leave. God is going to destroy this place. And so Lot talked to his family, and most of them laughed at him and refused to go. But he forced his wife and his daughters to go. And the angel said, hurry fast. This place is going to be consumed. Consumed in an instant, which is what happens to Babylon. And so Lot grabs them by the, the angel grabs them by the hands and rushes them out of the city. And fire descends and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, Babylon will be destroyed, amongst other things, by fire. But... Before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he told his people, his person, to get out. Listen to what Revelation 18.4 says. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you don't partake of her sins and get destroyed with her as well. Dot, dot, dot. Come out of her. So, when Babylon is revealed, be it the literal Babylon in the Middle East, or be it some nation that lives like Babylon lives, there's going to come a time when she's going to be destroyed, and God's people are told to flee, just like they were told to flee Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, after reading this passage, I said, what if the United States was Babylon? Just what if? I don't think it is, but what if it was? Where would we go? Is there any nation on the planet better than ours? No. But one thing I do know, that won't be the criteria for fleeing. It'll be just getting out of there so they don't die. It won't be getting out of there to a better place. We live in a godless world. 
It's constantly enticing us to partake of her sins. God, however, calls us to a different path. And I see believers taking that different path all the time. I read about a man recently. He refused to join a local gym because he knew that the women dressed very inappropriately there and he wouldn't be able to go to that gym without having inappropriate thoughts. So he just said, I'm not joining the, joining the gym. I'm not joining any gym. That's a godly man. Some of you might think, well, if he's got a problem with his thought life, he's not a godly man. No, he is a godly man. He's resisting temptation. He's a good man. He wants to join a gym. Everybody joins a gym. He wants to be fit, but his physical fitness is not as important to him as his holiness, as we sang about this morning. And there are other ways you can work out. I know of people who, for the love of God, give food and money to homeless people. Most of you do it. I know people who keep food in their cars, so when they run into one, they can give them food. We don't walk like Babylon. We're on a different path. I know of people, some of them in this very church, whose lives are wrapped around serving others in the church. What I mean by that is, they don't just come to church. This is their family. Where do they spend their free time? With these people. What do they spend their time doing? Doing things for this church and these people. It's not golfing and soccer and antiquing. It's serving the church. They have given their lives to serve this church because they love God and love his people. There are people who will bypass a pay increase and a promotion because it will take them from their families. And they say, no, I want to spend more time with my family. Or they will bypass a job because the owner is a bit dishonest and they don't want to get tied into that. It's not worth, you know, that raise isn't worth them losing their integrity. You know, this list goes on and on and on. Babylon the Great is cast down. And God tells his people that are still in her to come out. America has some of, and this applies to any country that, you know, anybody's listening to, has some of these characteristics. I've been praying for this country to repent. It's not too late for us yet. But it sure seems hopeless, doesn't it? But just keep praying. The more you dislike the president, the more you should pray for him. The more you dislike the Supreme Court, the more you should pray for it. Don't like the direction the country is going? Neither do I. Pray for it. And listen, when the elections come around again, use your head. Vote by biblical principle. What do they stand for? And if they had full power to put their agenda forth, would I want them as president? Research. There's a website, isidewith.com. It asks you a bunch of questions. And then it tabulates your answers over all the candidates' answers and tells you which candidate shares your views the closest. Pretty cool website, isidewith. I'd encourage you to check it out so you can start tracking your candidates now. 
So Babylon, the great, is considered a harlot. And in the next chapter, in the book of Revelation, we read about a pure and spotless bride. I don't think it's a coincidence that in one chapter we're talking about a harlot, and in the next chapter we're talking about a pure and spotless bride. God is doing a comparison. This is what evil godlessness is like, and it's people, and this is what my people are like. You are the bride of Christ. Keep up the godly work. Don't let the world corrupt you. Don't follow the world. Lead the world. And if the time comes when somebody pressures you to go against what you know to be right, you just stand up, look them square in the eye, and say, I will not do that. It's wrong. Oh, they might make fun of you. Let them. Let them mock you. Who cares? Don't let them dirty you. Don't let them take you down with them. There comes a point where you have to take a stand. So I encourage you not to be gentle about it, not to be timid. Oh, I don't think so. Stand up for that which is right. Maybe had we been standing stronger, harder, and longer, our country wouldn't have gotten to where it is today. I don't know. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, you have taught us right from wrong. You've given us a whole chapter on just sexual behavior. You taught us to love one another and to be holy. I'll be the first to admit the temptations of this world, they get to us day after day after day. But Lord, please help us to be strong. Help us to be the kind of people that shine a light not the kind that hide from the darkness, but the kind that brighten the darkness. May we not be the kind that are led by the nose and deceived, but may we be the kind that lead others to you. Do whatever work you need to in our lives and in our hearts to make us those kind of people so that we can bring praise and honor to Jesus because he's done so much for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.